This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody, it's Lon Sybin, and it's time for your weekly wrap-up. And today we're taking a look at a couple of different topics, including some tech gear that I used 20 years ago in 1998, We're going to explore the progression of bandwidth and how we're just connecting to the world so much faster than we did 20 years ago. We'll look at identification and authentication in the 21st century and how it can be made to be better. And we'll talk about creators who are taking their channels and making them into premium-only subscriptions where you have to pay to see what your favorite creators make. We'll be exploring all of those topics here right now. Now, I want to begin by thanking our newest supporters here on the channel, including James Naphtali, Yankee Steve, Matthew Martin, and Injun Kim. Uh, all of these folks contributed either via Patreon or my donor box page. I want to thank them and everyone who's been contributing on an ongoing basis to the channel, as well as everyone who watches on a regular basis, too, because all of those things equal channel growth. Now, we don't have an advertiser this week, but we do have a non-ad for Rugged Ridge Forest and their delicious wood-fired maple syrup. And you might be wondering, what's the relevance of maple syrup to this channel? Well, the relevance is uh, my brother is the person who produces this syrup up there. This is his company. Uh, He does a good bulk of the work on this himself. He's got, uh, I think, several thousand trees tap on his property. And uh, what they do every spring is extract the sap from the trees boil it down using this wood-fired method that he's developed and uh, have some really delicious maple syrup as a result. And you can check him out at ruggedridgeforest.com or the link down below there. And he's got a great documentary video that he just released this week, which I'll put down in the master playlist so you can learn a little bit more about his workflow. So let's take a look at the week in review. And on the Extras channel, I unboxed a Dell laptop that we reviewed on the main channel, along with a sponsored post that we did for the Mocha Alliance, comparing those Mocha adapters that work over your cable wires versus power line. That was a fun head-to-head to do. We also looked at this little Lenovo 500 keyboard, which I have in my hand right here. And what's cool about it is that the keyboard itself is also a trackpad. It's a capacitive uh, keyboard here. So although you can you know, type on the keys and they click, when you run your fingers across it, it turns into a mouse. It might be really helpful for some home theater folks. Uh, so you can take a look at the review and determine whether or not it's best for you. But uh, this thing had a lot of interest on my community tab uh, post from the other day. So I was glad a lot of you got a lot out of that review. It's not all that expensive at 60 bucks, but of course you can buy those uh, cheap little Chinese keyboards for a lot less. But if you want something classier, uh, this one certainly is that. And now it's time for a couple of things that are on my mind. And this is week 63 of me doing this as a full-time occupation. And this past week was a milestone because I graduated college 20 years ago last week, which was 
crazy that all this time has passed and it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. Uh, here's a photo of me along with my friend Andy Brown on the right and in the middle uh, was our retiring university president Humphrey Tonkin. I went to the University of Hartford and graduated with a communications degree and both Andy and I were involved in the student leadership at the school so we got to hang out on the executive suite before we uh, marched out to get our degrees. But I thought it'd be kind of fun to show you what my technology looked like back in 1998 because I have been a tech geek my entire life and I was certainly a big tech geek back then when it was a little bit more difficult to get everything working than it is today and I figured I would show you what my computer setup looked like right about the time that I graduated. So I had a 15-inch CRT monitor. I think this was like a Daiwoo monitor or something like that. Uh, over here, we've got my right guard deodorant, which was always important to have around there. Uh, here's a zip disk because hard drives were pretty pricey at that point. You could get them, but uh, obviously it was uh, more expensive to buy a hard drive than it was to buy a bunch of 100 megabyte zip disks. And I was storing documents and MP3 files on these things, and I had a whole stack of them there because it was cheaper to do those than getting more hard drive space. Uh, this is my Iowa Mini system. It was a CD changer. It had three CDs that it could swap around in there, dual cassette along with, you know, of course, the analog input for the computer itself. And uh, MP3s were starting to become a thing at that point. It was kind of revolutionary that you could fit so much audio fidelity in a file that was maybe two or three megabytes in size. And that was a pretty cool thing. You could fit a bunch of those on a zip disk, actually. Uh, this was a printer. I think it was an Epson printer that I got here although I did have a Canon inkjet around the same time as well. Now, these photos were taken with a Kodak DC120 digital camera. I got that uh, my, by the fall of my senior year, and it was great because I have all these pictures of that year because it was so cheap and easy to take photos, and I had the zip drive to store them on. Uh, this was one of the first uh, higher resolution digital cameras. It was about a megapixel or so. And the computer under the desk running everything was a computer I built myself. It was the first one I ever built. And that was running with a Pentium 233 MMX processor, which was a pretty decent chip at that point. This was right before the Pentium 2 processors came out. And I bought the chip at one of these computer fairs we'd have in the Hartford area here in Connecticut every couple of months. You'd go there and buy a, a chip off the tray, and usually it would be a pretty good deal. And most of the time it worked. A little bit of a risky thing there, but it was a good way to get computer parts cheap. I'm sure many of you have probably been to those things in the past. And uh, the computers were connected to our campus network with Ethernet. At the time, it was only a 10 megabit network, and we had probably about a one uh, megabit per second connection or thereabouts to the internet in both directions, which was pretty darn fast compared to the uh, dial-up connection I would have when I was at home. That was the hard part about graduating. I had to go back to a uh, regular old dial-up connection for a couple of years until we got DSL service where I lived. Uh, this was the laptop that I got probably about midway through my second semester. Uh, this was a Micron uh, 233 MMX device as well. Now, my desktop computer had a GPU, a Voodoo 2 card. Uh, the laptops, of course, at that time did not have GPUs, but it was a pretty speedy little device and was functioning pretty much as fast as my desktop did for most of the stuff that I was using it for. And uh, this photo was from my student government office. I was the student body president. I had my own office, so I had a nice little desk set up in there, and I could use my laptop there and, of course, back in the dorm room, too. And you can see what a mess my desk was back then. Now, another device I used quite a bit in the mid to late 90s was a Newton, and the last Newton I owned was a Newton 2000. 
end. I am going to do a video on these at some point. You always see that one behind me here uh, in all the videos that I do. I believe that one still works, and I have a Newton 2000 upstairs as well. I picked up a couple of them on eBay when they were really cheap because I think there's some value to them just, just from a nostalgic standpoint for me. Uh, these things really helped me considerably because you saw that my desk both at my dorm room and my office were a total mess. Uh, and the Newton was something that helped me organize my life a little bit better. I had a lot of things going on when I was in college for class and the student government stuff and everything else. And uh, this thing really helped me keep my life organized so I did not break commitments and whatnot. Uh, and the uh, device is pretty cool. You could write on it. It would recognize handwriting. It even recognized shapes and things as well. So really ahead of its time, it had the ability to fax. There was a modem that you could pop into it. Uh, you could plug in Ethernet adapters to it also, I believe. And you could get essentially onto the Internet with it and check your email and then send the fax as well. So it was really handy to have as both a, a general purpose organizer, but also a communication device. I didn't have any cellular connections for it or anything, but it was good at just about anything I threw at it. In fact, here's a photo of me uh, at a hotel room at that conference, and I didn't have to bring a clunky laptop with me. Uh, the Newton was able to do everything I needed. I was able to uh, keep up with my email as well as use it to take notes in some of the meetings that I was in. It wasn't good enough for classroom notes and that kind of thing, but it was certainly great for uh, a lot of other tasks that I used it for. And you could decide whether or not to keep your notes as digital ink, essentially, or have it recognize the handwriting as you went. The handwriting recognition was never perfect on this thing. I think they oversold it a bit, and that really hurt the Newton uh, in sales because it was revolutionary, and a lot of people agreed that it was, but uh, the handwriting recognition was not perfect. And as a result, I think a lot of consumers thought that it just wasn't quite ready yet, uh, especially given the price point that they had. But for me, it was a great way uh, to keep myself organized, and it was a very powerful little platform as well. And a lot of what uh, this product was is what our smartphones and tablets are. And, I, and it's going to be fun, I think, to explore the Newton a bit when I get some time because it really did set up, I think, a lot of the uh, things that we associate with a smartphone or a tablet. So let me know if you'd like to see more about that in an upcoming video. And our first question on the Q&A this week comes from Mick Global. And this was on the video I did on those Mocha versus Powerline adapters where we're talking about how 15 megabits per second is just too darn slow these days. And he was reminiscing about uh, the days of dial-up and how slow things were back then. Uh, he's talking about his 14.4K modem in uh, his response here. I had a 14.4 modem that I got, I think, in 1992 as you all know, I ran a bulletin board system back in the day, and most of the major modem manufacturers would give you a discount if you bought the modem and let everybody on your system know that you had it, because if the system that you were connecting to had a fast modem, maybe you might want to buy one for yourself. And the discounted price was $250 back in 1992. I think the retail price on these things was four or $500. The prices dropped considerably on the 14.4 modems as time went on, uh, but most people were still kind of going along with 2,400 or 1,200 baud modems, which were ridiculously slow. And just to give you an idea as to how slow they were, uh, the game Doom, when it came out in December of 1993, was available uh, as a shareware download. It was about a two megabyte a zip file that you would download from your favorite bulletin board system. And uh, these days, it's not all that uh, long to download something, but if you were on a 2400 baud modem, it would take two hours to download just two megabytes. Uh, the 14.4 modems, which were uh, really prevalent at that point in time, could do it in 20 minutes, still a long time for only two megabytes. 
Uh, but today, with my 300 megabits per second cable connection, it's nearly instantaneous. It's like a fraction of a second or something. So really fast now, but you can just see how long things took then. And the worst part, for me at least, was that I lived in Connecticut in an area where we had a very limited local calling area. So most of the stuff that I wanted to download, I had to go out and dial a long distance call. The crazy thing was it was often more expensive to call in state than it was to call out of state. But nonetheless, the best rate I think I had at that point was maybe 10 or 12 cents a minute. Uh, the phone bill was ridiculous. My mother was going to kill me uh, for downloading all this stuff because if you wanted the game, you had to you know, connect long distance to the bulletin board system that had it, and it took a really long time to get this stuff when it came out. Now, just by comparison, if we were to do this video uh, over a 14.4 modem, it would take about two weeks factoring in a two gigabyte or so video file to just download what you're seeing here. So it's amazing how fast everything has progressed here over a very short period of time. One of the last classes I took as a college student was looking at the adoption rate of mass communication technologies, namely radio and television. Uh, we're talking about decades to get to the point that the smartphone has gotten to an only five or six years. It's just really incredible how fast the entire planet has adopted this technology, especially compared to uh, other mass communication technologies of the past. And I feel very fortunate to remember a time before all this stuff, and I really do appreciate what we have now because it's just amazing that, again, I can sit here in this basement uh, making a YouTube video and get it out to the world in a matter of minutes, whereas before it would take at least two weeks to download it, even with a good connection. Now, with all this new technology comes a lot of pitfalls, uh, namely, as Shane Thomas is asking here in our next question, about how easy it is to steal somebody's personal information and apply for credit cards on their behalf and do a whole bunch of other nasty things just by getting a hold of a single identification number, for example, like your social security number. We have an issue right now in the United States where a credit rating agency uh, essentially gave over uh, the information to about half the U.S. population to hackers who are now in possession of this data and will certainly be working to exploit it over uh, the foreseeable future. And it's unfortunate because there really is just no good way to authenticate people here in this country, in the United States and other places as well. And I think... This is probably our biggest challenge of the 21st century is this uh, authentication. How do we do it? How do we do it in a way that we can uh, prove who we say we are uh, without turning over too much private information to the government or third-party entities? Because we all saw with the Equifax hack uh, how easy it is for large volumes of personal data to be stolen. And I don't know if there are any clear ways to do this just yet, but there are a number of people out there working on this problem. And if you're interested in diving into this authentication problem, a great starting point is this short article from the Harvard Business Review that will undoubtedly lead you down uh, other paths in exploring authentication technology and how it might interface with governments and financial institutions. Uh, eight ways governments can improve their cybersecurity is the headline, and they really dive deep into this. And one of the neat things that I hadn't thought about was not relying on a single means of authentication because at some point some state-sponsored hacker might figure out a way to crack your authentication technique and you got to be prepared to throw it out and roll in something new. And that is really difficult for a nation to do, especially one as big as the United States with uh, multiple layers of government and everything else. This is a big, big problem and uh, 
I think just about every citizen's social security number is sitting in some hacker's database somewhere now. So we've got to come up with better ways, especially when we interface with the government for uh, getting this problem solved. Because uh, at least with tax returns, if you know my birth date and my social security number, uh, you could likely file a tax return on my behalf and steal my tax rebate or uh, create a real issue for me with the IRS. There really isn't a way to authenticate I am who I say I am when I am filing my taxes and uh, interfacing with the government in other ways as well. One thing that I have noticed, though, is that when I'm dealing with financial institutions, they've been quizzing me now. And what they do is they go back into my credit history and they might ask me a question, where have you lived before? And sometimes the list of questions they provide me on these multiple choice quizzes is address that I've never lived at before. So they're trying to uh, go into your past information that they know is good and asking the person who is applying for credit or uh, doing some kind of interface with the financial institution to answer things from that validated information. So that's a good starting point, but I'm not seeing the government do that. I'm seeing just these credit institutions do that. So we'll have to see where it goes. But of course, uh, somebody could hack that information from the credit agency also. So again, we've just got to keep uh, changing strategies here as hackers catch up. And I think it's going to be a continuous game of cat and mouse on this one. Another issue, though, is that transaction validation. And I think this is where uh, some of the technologies we're seeing around cryptocurrency might come into play. Uh, this blockchain technology is a great way to uh, authenticate the validity of a transaction because you have uh, multiple, multiple parties in these blockchain relationships that all agree when something happened. And this is great for copyright, especially as it crosses borders. And it might be very good for uh, tracking consumer data. But of course, keeping the contents of that blockchain private so people's information doesn't leak out from it will be important. And of course, the other questions we have to answer is how does the government uh, interface with all of this for uh, transactions with citizens for taxes and other things? So we've got a lot of work to do on this as time rolls on here. But I think this will probably be the next big thing that will be driving a lot of new jobs in the 21st century. Authentication, transaction validation, uh, applying blockchain technologies to some of this stuff as well. Uh, really cool stuff. We're really in an exciting period of time where uh, how we operate as a society is changing dramatically. And uh, this is a, a fun new field, I think, for people to start thinking about if they're looking for a career to uh, spend their time in. And speaking of unpredictable 21st century career paths, uh, us YouTube creators are constantly in a state of flux trying to adjust to all the changes that happen on this platform from one minute to the next. And of course, Adpocalypse has been a big problem. And Mike McKeever wrote in on my Facebook group about one of his favorite creators and how that person is adjusting to Adpocalypse. And what they're doing is making content exclusive only to Patreon subscribers. He's totally cool paying for that content. I do as well uh, on many uh, channels that I subscribe to. But the problem he's running into and one that I run into a bit as well is the fact that he likes to watch on his big 4K smart television. And when he's watching YouTube on his TV, those Patreon-supported videos are not showing up because they are unlisted. And as an unlisted video, it doesn't show up in that, uh, that creator's subscription feed. So he's having a hard time getting the stuff over to his television. Now, of course, you say, yes, but you can just Chromecast it, hit a couple buttons on the phone, and it's good. But 
there is friction involved here to get the content that you're paying for onto the device that you want to watch it on. And I can totally get where he's coming from on this. You can, of course, maybe add it to your watch later playlist or something like that, but it still requires a multi-step process to just get the video uh, into the spot where you want to watch it. And I do think this is a problem. And I've talked in the past about some simple things YouTube can do to make things a little bit better for us. And this might be another area that they can tackle next. Now, they are rolling out a new sponsorship feature on the platform, which was initially only available to gaming channels. Uh, what this lets somebody do is sponsor a channel for $5. And in doing so, uh, you can get exclusive community posts, but not exclusive video posts. And they also put like little icons next to your name so that people know that you're a sponsor of the channel. And this is a good first step, but... Again, it doesn't let somebody post a video only to their sponsors and have it show up in a TV app, for example. So it is something worth looking at, and I think it's good that YouTube is starting to experiment with uh, viewer revenue as a means of helping their creator community, but I think they do need to go farther with it. I also think at some point Patreon is going to get acquired, and the best choice of acquiring partner would likely be Google slash YouTube because so many YouTube creators are using Patreon, and maybe they can do some kind of integration there to get it all working. But right now, I think it's just not a good environment for the creator or for the consumers of uh, this content, given how disconnected a lot of these sponsorship platforms are from the platform that is hosting the video. So we'll have to see where this goes. But in the meantime, you'll have to do some extra steps to consume your Patreon-sponsored content. And our Q&A for you this week is on this topic. Are you finding that uh, you are not watching some of this exclusive content because it's so hard to get it to the platform you want? Uh, let me know down in the comments below what your experience has been and what you think YouTube should do to make it easier for you to support your favorite creators. Now, our channel of the week this week is one that I, uh, I think I had up on a screen somewhere in one of my reviews last week, and that was for Spawn Wave. And he's got a great channel here. It focuses a lot on the Nintendo Switch. And this is a great example of if you persevere and really work hard, uh, you can build the channel, even though there's so many other channels covering the same topic out there. And what he's doing is kind of like a news roundup once a day of all the uh, news that kind of fits into the Nintendo Switch and some related uh, video gaming items. And I think he does a really nice job with this because it's very convenient for me as somebody who's busy doing stuff all day to kind of get a nice news update uh, as to what is out there. And typically what he finds of interest, I find of interest too. So you can check him out there. He's also done a lot of uh, research into some of these uh, third-party Switch docs and what they might do to your console and whatnot. So great channel, especially if you are a Nintendo Switch fan. And that is Spawnwave. So this week on the channel, I've got a couple of things planned. I definitely want to get to this one next, the WD My Passport Wireless SSD. We looked at a similar product to this about a year ago. That one had a spinning hard drive in it. This one's got a solid state drive, so it's more rugged. And the main feature that they really push on this one is that it has a SD card slot on it. So if you are out in the field taking photos or video, uh, you can back up your cards automatically to it. So you don't have to you know, go on to the computer or do anything. You just plug it into the side of the drive. It dumps the card, and then you can pull it back out and stick it back in your camera. Uh, what's nice about this is that it is ruggedized and solid state, so you can drop it and likely will not have any issues arise from it. But it does have some MyCloud features built into it also, so it does have some apps you can install. I think it actually has a Plex server too. 
wasn't great on the other one because it doesn't transcode or anything, but we'll take a look and see if this one does any better with it. And again, kind of a neat little product from WD that we will explore in some detail. I also hope to get to the Oculus Go, and this of course has been out for a little bit now, so I would love to get some feedback from you on things that were not covered so much in other reviews you have watched, so uh, let me know what you'd like to see me do with it uh, down below in the comments as I'll probably start evaluating it on Tuesday. So if you want to help the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a one-time or monthly contribution to the channel. We also have our ongoing relationship with Plex, where if you sign up for a Plex account, no credit card required, we get a small commission. We get a little larger commission if you get a Plex pass or gift it to somebody else. So check out Plex if you want to help us out. We have other channels, including my extras channel at lon.tv extras. Audio versions of this show can be found at lon.tv slash podcast, along with my uh, monthly interview that we do here on the channel now as part of that feed. We have the Snippets channel at lon.tv slash snippets, which are bite-sized portions of what you're seeing here. And we have my live streams at lon.tv slash live streams, which I hope, again, at some point to begin uh, on a regular basis. If you really like what I'm doing, I ask that you click that notification bell because just being subscribed these days is not enough. You've got to click the bell to get notified. So do that if you like what you see here. You can engage with the channel by signing up for my email list at lon.tv slash email. Our Facebook page is at lon.tv slash Facebook. The Facebook group, which is really humming along now, we've got a lot of folks in there, can be found at lon.tv slash Facebook group, and it's great to see so many of you interacting with each other. And, of course, we've got the store at lon.tv slash store, where I sell the items that I purchase to review here on the channel. You can usually get a pretty good deal on this stuff because it is used, but uh, it is pretty much brand new. And I'm going to probably put up that new Hades Canyon NUC on there in a couple of days with storage, RAM, and a Windows license. That might be a good deal uh, worth looking out for. So if you want to get notified whenever I do add something to the store, you can sign up for an email alert at lon.tv slash store alert. And I'll let you know every time I put something new into that store. So that's going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. It's been a crazy weekend for me. I had this big volunteer thing going on, so I'm a little uh, out of it mentally. But hopefully I made enough sense today. Uh, Let me know what you think down in the comments below. And as usual, I greatly appreciate everything you do to keep this channel growing. And all those comments and suggestions and complaints uh, are read and uh, consumed and processed here. So I really appreciate you doing that for me because it really does help point the channel in the direction that you viewers would like to see it go in. And of course, we've got the Facebook group now, which which has been great for getting that kind of feedback too. So until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters of the Black Eyed and Blues Music Hour podcast, Chris Allegretta, and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.